0: The New Testament reading for today is from Luke ten, twenty-five to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him and do whatever more, whatever more you spe- spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The Old Testament sermon text is from Deuteronomy 5 6, 17, and 22, 1 4, which is on page 86 in your paperback Bibles. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not murder. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you and you do not know who he is, you shall bring it home to your house. And it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. You shall do the same with his donkey or with his garment or with any lost thing of your brother's, which he loses and you find. You may not ignore it. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him to lift them up again. This is the word of the Lord.
1: The Lord cares about the lives of his people. Amen? The Lord cares about the lives of his people. The book of Deuteronomy is a proof of that. The whole book, if you think about it, is proof. Remember, we've been talking and, and saying that Deuteronomy is a treaty. The whole book is a treaty between God, the king, and Israel, his people. It's rules for how they should live with him. And, and if you get to the end of the book, which we will, I promise, we're going to get to the end someday. And when we get to the end, uh, there, it says at the very end that these laws are there so that the people, when they keep them, they shall live and multiply. And God will bless them in the land. God cares about life. That's what lies at the heart of the Sixth Commandment. You shall not murder. And as we look at this this morning, I I want us to try to come to understand that principle, the principle of this law that we're probably most uh, quick to check off. This is the one that we say, okay, at least I've got that one done. Well, as we study that this morning, I hope we're going to come to see that rightly understood this law lays us bare. This law has a lot to teach us. And this morning, I want to see three things that this law teaches us specifically. First, this law teaches us that life is important to God because we bear His image. Life is important to God because we bear His image. Secondly, this commandment teaches us that we must not only avoid causing death, but we must preserve and enhance life. We must not only only avoid causing death, but we must preserve and enhance life. And then thirdly, it shows that only the gospel can help us keep it, that it's only through the gospel that we can keep this law. So let's talk about that. Life is important to God because we bear his image. Not too long ago, a couple years ago, I got a phone call on the church phone And I answered it, and on the other end of the line was a scientist from Harvard. And this woman told me that she wanted to meet with some Christians, some people of faith, to discuss the work she was doing. Now, some of you probably remember this. I know a bunch of you were around. We invited her to come to the church. After church, we had a lunch for her. We ordered pizza, and she gave us a presentation about her work. She told us about work that she was doing with embryos, And her her hope was, through her research, to one day be able to go into an embryo and make some changes to hopefully prevent disease. Hopefully, maybe one day prevent a disease that would have made it impossible for that child to live. And after she presented, we had a little Q&A. And there were a lot of questions. Lots of people had thoughts. And I think, in general, the takeaway from that was we were all really excited about the idea. We thought it it sounded wonderful to, to eliminate some of these horrible diseases, but then we also had a lot of concerns. Because she acknowledged that the same technology that could potentially prevent disease could also, perhaps, give parents the ability to design their children, to make decisions about who they would be, what color their skin might be, how their eyes might look, what type of body they might have. And we wondered, Is it good for any human being to have that much control? Is it right for us to have that much control over life itself? Well, when you start to think through the sixth commandment, when you start to wrestle with the implications, that's where you end up. Not in these clear black and white areas of morality, but you end up with complicated stuff, things that might upset people when you reach certain conclusions. So to understand this, to understand how we're supposed to think, we first need to understand, why does God care so much? Why does God care so much? Well, the sixth commandment is not rooted in Deuteronomy. It is rooted in the very first page of our Bibles, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 tells the story of creation of God creating the whole world. And on the very last day of creation, the the, the pinnacle of creation, he created human beings. It tells us God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It tells us that God created people in his own image. Theologians, they have a fancy word to talk about this. They call it the imago Dei. Say that. Imago Dei, you know know what it means, right? It's just Latin for image of God. It's the same thing. We just like to sound smart when we say it. Um, But image of God, that's what it means. He says God has created us in the image of God. It tells us that God set people apart from the rest of creation by impressing his image upon us. And you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see that. You don't have to be a a Harvard scientist to, to know that there is a difference between human beings and the rest of creation. We are uniquely like God amongst all of the other pieces of this earth. And Jesus knew that. Jesus talked about that in Matthew chapter 22. Do you remember this story? There is a moment when the Pharisees are testing Jesus. They're trying to catch him in a trap, and so they want to ask him a question about taxes. They said, tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? and they said Caesars. Then he said to them, "Therefore rend to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's." And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. In that moment, God Jesus tells us something about the image of God. He says, "We bear the image of God." And that is the sign of how we ultimately belong to him because our lives bear the image of God we belong to God now when we start to talk about life and death you may hear those the term sanctity of life thrown around you guys hear that I think people in the church use it a lot I think in politics you hear it a lot the idea of the sanctity of life sanctity it means holiness it means sacredness it means separateness And usually, when people are talking about the sanctity of life, they're they're trying to communicate that that life is the most precious thing. And therefore, it needs to be protected at all costs. But I'm not sure the Bible actually talks about it that way. I'm not sure sanctity of life is a fair definition uh, of the way the Bible views life. In fact, if you read Deuteronomy if you look through this collection of laws, if you read through the whole Bible, you see the main issue isn't that life is the most precious thing to God. It's not about the sanctity of life, but really it's about the supremacy of God. It's not about the sanctity of life, but it is about the supremacy and the sovereignty of God who owns all life. God cares about life Because he is the giver of life. God cares about life because he is the rightful owner of our lives. Amen? His image is imprinted on us. Just like Caesar had the right to all of his coins, God has the right to the lives of his people. He has the right. But we don't. In fact, it says we are forbidden to treat human life as if it belongs to us. To take away life, whether it is ours, whether it is another person's, that is outside of our rights. That is overstepping our bounds. Because life does not belong to us. Amen? Life does not belong to us. That's the first point. God cares about life. Life is important to God because we bear His image. And the second point is this. That means we must not only avoid causing death, but we must preserve and enhance life. We must not only avoid causing death, but we must preserve and enhance life. Okay, the command. If you go look in the Hebrew Bible, you'll find that this command is only two words long. The literal translation would be no kill. That's how it reads. But kill isn't the best translation because it's not talking about all kinds of killing. It isn't talking about animals, for instance. It's not talking about plants here. The word is a very particular kind of killing, a very particular word that means the unjust taking away of a human life. So, so murder is a little bit of a better fit, but it's still not exact because it's not just, it's not just shooting somebody. It's, it's not just stabbing someone, but it is actually any unsanctioned way that life is taken. That's what this means. We are not allowed to participate in any unsanctioned way in which life is taken. But what does that mean? What is a sanctioned way of taking away life? Is there such a thing? What is the... Uh, th- when is killing okay? You know, there's a lot written on that. There, are, there has been a ton of ink spilt trying to answer that question. When is it okay to kill? Pages and pages. Books on just war theory. Ethics books filled with hypothetical situations for what might you do if you ran across this situation. Those things are important. I think we, as, as the church... Should be thinking about those things. I think we should consider those questions. But I also think the very fact we are asking that question reveals the state of our world. The very fact that the first place we go is to wonder when it's okay shows just how fallen this world is that we live in. We live in a world where lives are regularly taken. We live in a world where people's lives have been devalued. We are desensitized to death. Do you realize that? We are used to this commandment being broken. We're used to murder. This week, in in the office, I was sitting down and I saw in CNN a story of a mass shooting in Maryland. And instantly, my heart sunk. I clicked on the article and I started to to read about it. I was actually talking to Chad while, while it came up. And we saw that it was only three people. And we were like, oh, it's only three people. And even though that was a tragedy, we were like, well, it could have been worse, and we moved on with our day. The day before that, I saw a story of 300 people killed in a bombing in Somalia. But because we've had this one after another, tragedy after tragedy, it's like, yeah, of course, that's just a part of our day. We see people, we read about people getting killed all the time. But Deuteronomy treats life much differently than we do. Chapters 19 through 22 of this book expand on the Sixth Commandment. They talk about what it means not to murder. And there's all these very specific rules for how the Israelites were supposed to live. And one that stands out is in chapter 21. Chapter 21 talks about what you do in the case of an unsolved murder. God tells them in that case you need to find where the body is and you need to measure to the nearest town. And then once you decide what town is the closest, all the residents from that town must come out and they must make a sacrifice to atone for the blood. Now the rules of the sacrifice aren't really that important. Even the event, though, seems kind of strange to us, right? But the point, the principle that God is communicating with that command is that Life is important. And when death occurs, the life, the whole city stops. Everyone considers it. Everyone acknowledges that the whole town is guilty for letting that take place. We have come a long way from that. That attitude is so far from our attitude. In fact, I think the damning thing is that the first question about the sixth commandment is, yeah, but when is it okay? Okay. So let me be clear, I just want to run down a few things to make sure we do know what this clearly prohibits. What, is, what are the things we cannot do according to the Sixth Commandment? The first one is murder. That seems obvious enough, you can't murder people. But I also know, having lived here for uh, 12 years now, I've, I've spoken personally to young men who believe it is within their right to kill another human being if it's an act of retaliation. It's not. It's evil. God forbids it. Murder is forbidden. Secondly, suicide is included here. Now, I don't know if any of you have Catholic backgrounds, but the Catholic Church has taught that, that suicide is an unforgivable sin. And I, I want to make sure to address that, because that's not a big, biblical concept. God can save in spite of our sin. And I know that in this room, there are people who, who struggle with depression, who have struggled with invasive thoughts. I know there are people in this room whose, whose siblings, whose family members, have committed suicide. And I, I want to encourage you to know that, that God can save in spite of our sin. God is still able to, to redeem us from everything that we do through Jesus Christ. But the principle here again, rests in that fact that life doesn't belong to us. Do you hear that? Even our own lives don't belong to us. And so we do not have the power to end them as if they do. A third issue that falls under this commandment is abortion. And I know that that is a highly politicized issue. In fact, I'm pretty nervous to even mention it. I I thought a lot about bringing it up this, this Sunday. Um, I know, again, that this is a personal issue for a lot of people. People have wounds that they are dealing with, and so I don't want to be brazen with something like this. I don't want to, to, to stab you in the side and move on. Um, but I think in order to be faithful, I need to preach on this. I need to mention it. But I want to say, when Scripture brings this up, it is not about pro-life and pro-choice. It is, it is not about dictating what women are supposed to be able to do with their bodies the issues those issues aren't really in the conversation it is all about God this command is all about God the giver of life murder suicide abortion it is all part of that very same principle that we are not allowed to end our life or anyone else's because life is not ours to control We are made in God's image, and so we belong to him. But if we only operate on that level, if we're only going through this checklist as we examine this commandment, we're not taking it far enough. Because this is not just about the literal taking away of someone's life. Jesus famously expanded on this in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, he said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So when Jesus starts to talk about this, when Jesus starts to preach about this, he says, that this command is not only about literally ending life, but it is about any way in which we maliciously deal with another person's life. It's about not only our actions, but it's about our words. And not only our words, but it's about what's inside of our hearts. Now, murder is the least acceptable sin on earth, right? go around the world, travel the globe, every culture, you will find there is some kind of prohibition on murder. Nobody accepts murder. But anger, anger might be the most acceptable sin. Anger is not only accepted, it's excused, right? We say, you're right to be angry. You know, that guy's a jerk. When we think about killing, we write books to justify our actions. We do all these theological tricks to prove that it might be okay. But with anger, we just, we just shrug it off. We laugh it off over a cup of coffee or talking to our friend on the phone. Honestly, I think with most of us, we don't even acknowledge our anger. I think with most of us, we don't even recognize the anger that's inside of us. When Melissa and I were going to marriage counseling, okay, we still go to marriage counseling, but this was a long time ago when this particular thing happened. Counseling is good, guys. I just want to encourage that. Um, But early on in our counseling days, uh, I remember first going thinking, I'm the righteous one here because Melissa is the angry one. When we get in a fight, you know, Melissa, I think most couples are like this. There's the, the expressive angry, and then there's the not-so-expressive angry. So Melissa, you know, she might be an occasional door slammer or something like that. And so I would say, well, you know, she's the one that has the anger problem. And our counselor, maybe in one of our first or second sessions, she zoomed in right on that, and she said to me, look, Logan, you are extremely angry, and in your calmness in your collectedness in the the way that you are distant your anger might even be worse than hers because your anger is mean maybe you're like me maybe you don't recognize that you're an angry person I think that's the case for a lot of us I think most of us don't see how much anger we have inside but even if we do see it we don't take it seriously We don't recognize what Jesus says that our anger has behind it the same heart that leads to murder. Our anger has the same heart as this command forbidden in the sixth commandment and eventually we will have to be held accountable for that. So now we're starting to think. Jesus starts to expand our minds as we're thinking about this sixth commandment. He starts to show us that it means more than we thought it meant. It's not just about ending life, but we break this commandment, we violate this commandment anytime we put another person beneath ourselves, anytime we diminish the life of another person or another group of people. Now, I think we need to hear that, so I'm gonna repeat it, okay? We violate this command whenever we put ourselves above another person, whenever we diminish the life of another person or another group of people who have been made in the image of God. Amen? Evangelical Christians can get very loud about the issue of abortion. I, um, I once knew a woman who gave a whole year of her life to go live in Washington, D.C. And every day she would go to the steps of the capitol building and put duct tape over her mouth and stand there. And she said that the, the duct tape represented the millions of lives that had been silenced due to abortion. It's something you often hear Christians speaking about, talking about. But you know, many of those same evangelicals who get so passionate about that issue when the Black Lives Matter protest started, did nothing. (laughs) When a group of people spoke out and they said their voices were being silenced, when a group of people spoke out and said they were being killed, that they were being oppressed, that they were being mistreated and and people were, were acting as if they were less than human, many Christians responded with indifference. And through their inaction, they broke the sixth commandment. This commandment is an equal opportunity offender. It is not a liberal commandment. It is not a conservative commandment. It is a commandment that says, anytime we attempt to make someone's life less valuable than ours, whether it is actively or whether it is passively, we are guilty of sin. That's why the parable of the Good Samaritan is really helpful to us here. We just read that. It was our our New Testament reading. If you weren't listening, quick recap. A lawyer comes to Jesus and asks what he needs to do to follow the law. And Jesus says, you should love your neighbor as yourself. And it says, this man asks, then, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of a man who is beaten and bloodied and left for dead on the roadside. And two men pass him by. First, a Levite, who was a holy man. Then a priest, who was another holy man. Men who knew the law of God. And then finally, a Samaritan passed him by. And he went to him, and he washed him off, and he took him to an inn, and he gave his time and his money, and he said, let me know if there's any more needs, and I'll come back and pay them. That commandment, that that parable is helpful to us because it is full of people who break the sixth commandment? The priest and the Levite, of course, right? The, the the ones who walk by and ignore his pain. One of the other Old Testament passages we read from Deuteronomy, you might have thought it was a weird addition to our readings. It was all about oxes and cows. Did you hear that part? What to do when you find donkeys on the side of the road? <laughs> Well, the reason we read that was because it was talking about your neighbor's livelihood, and it said, if you see this, you shall not ignore it. Did you see that? If you see this, you shall not ignore it. That is what you might call a sin of omission. Right? We think of a sin of commission is when you're actively committing it, right? When you go and you shoot somebody. That's the sin of commission. But the sin of omission is when you fail to do the things you should have done. Those two guys, they break this commandment. But you know who else breaks it? The crowd. The crowd listening to this story who is shocked to find out that the Samaritan would go and help. Because this crowd have... Turned the whole all of the Samaritan people into a people who are less than them. They don't think of them as equals. They do not believe that the Samaritan people are capable of behaving the way that they behave. Racism is a violation of the Sixth Commandment. Amen? So here's what it looks like to keep the Sixth Commandment. We see this Samaritan. This guy who actively risks his life. Who gives his time and his resources and his energy to care for and love his neighbor. You see, to keep the sixth commandment, it's not enough that we avoid the bad things. It's not enough that we don't murder or that we don't oppress people or that we're not racists. That's the point of the sixth commandment. We have to not only avoid causing death, but we need to preserve life. We need to enhance the lives of others. We need to take up the cause of the weak. We need to take up the cause of the people who we see in need. It's not enough just to avoid killing, but we must actively love our neighbors as we love ourselves. So how are you doing with that? If your answer is pretty good... I want to to introduce you to my counselor later. (laughs) She'll tell you, no, you are an angry person. No, you are a murderer, according to the law of God. We are all murderers when it comes before this command. But the gospel can change that. My third point here is that only the gospel enables us to keep this command. Jesus alone shows us what it really looks like to keep this commandment. I told you that the Samaritan kept the commandment, but Jesus was the true and greater good Samaritan. Jesus was God in the flesh. Jesus was the most powerful, eternal creator of the world, and he crossed Not only the road, but he crossed all time and eternity to come to us. To come to us, a people who were enslaved by sin. A people who were bloodied and beaten and beaten down by unrighteousness and sin. Jesus came to save us from a certain death. He came to deliver us from the wrath of God. And here's how he did that. He did it first by living a perfect life in our place. He avoided all the things that this law forbids, amen? Pick up the Gospels and read them. We're doing that three year through the Bible. Tomorrow is Luke chapter 1. Pick it up, read it. If you read about Jesus, you will see that the leaders of his day were shocked because Jesus spent his time with outcasts. He spent his time with tax collectors and prostitutes. He spent his time with those that the world called less than. With the one the world despises and oppresses. Jesus fulfilled this law by going to the weak. He kept the law by doing those things that you and I have not done. But not only that, He took the punishment for breaking it. Christ himself was murdered. Christ had his life unjustly taken from him. On the cross, he was killed for crimes that he did not commit. But you know, when he was there and when he was suffering, it was for your crimes, it was for your anger. It was for your racism. It was for your killing. And here's the most incredible part. Because Jesus did that, his death is unique in all of history. Because Jesus went to the cross for us, his death is like no other death because his death is the only death that brings life. Hallelujah. His death is the only death that brings life. When Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, he showed us that the penalty for sin had been paid. He showed us that whoever would come to him in repentance, whoever would come to him trusting his righteousness and not their own would have eternal life. They would live forever in the presence of God. So that means two things for us today. One, it means that this morning to you, Jesus is offering life in the place of death. No matter where you are right now, no matter what you might have done, if you have broken this commandment, if your life right now is filled with anger and bitterness, if you find yourself overcome with resentment and contempt, if you find yourself struggling with with depression and a desire to take your own life, if you have taken the life of another, it doesn't matter. Jesus has given His life for you. Jesus has given His righteousness to you if you will only come. By His Spirit, He promises that He will transform you. That He will give you a new heart. A heart like His. A heart that desires not to take life, but to give it. If that's you this morning, I want to invite you to come. I want to invite you to come to Him and let the Gospel change you. But secondly, it means this. It means that we Christians in this room... Those of us who know Jesus, we have a new way to keep this commandment. See, not only are we able to follow Jesus, not only are we able to look at His example and follow in His footsteps by loving those who are in need, by giving ourselves for the welfare of others, by caring for the weak and the outcast. Not only can we do that, but we are, have literally been given the words of life. In this world full of brokenness, in this world full of despair, Christ has entrusted us with the gospel message. Christ has entrusted us with the words of life. And so we keep this command, not only by loving people who are made in the image of God, But by sharing the glorious news that God has come to earth and He has given His life for them. Guys, if you know this truth, I want to beg you don't pass people by, don't look at your neighbors. Men and women who are are beaten and lost and on the road to ruin. Don't see those people around you who are lost in their sin, who are bloodied and battered and facing a certain death. Don't see them and pass them by. But instead, I want to encourage you, look to Jesus. Look to the one who has crossed the road and come to you and go to them. Go to them and bring them life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the law. The Psalms tell us that the law is a delight to us. That it is a source of life for us. But Lord, apart from Jesus, the law is a terrible thing. Lord, I am grateful that he has come and fulfilled the law in our place. I'm grateful, Lord, that you offer salvation not to perfect people, but to people who see their need. Lord, I pray that we would come to You now as we come to this table. Transform us. Change us. Lord, give us Your grace. Amen.